The Exodus details God's deliverance of His people in a very specific place and time. But these pivotal events foreshadow the deliverance that God will bring to His people in every place and every time through Jesus. Just as the slaves in Egypt were delivered through God's faithfulness, we have been, are being, and will be delivered by Christ. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. our series this week uh, that we've entitled A Personal Exodus. We've been following and tracking with the people of Israel from the time that they were enslaved in the land of Egypt uh, to the time that they are right at the edge of the promised land ready to enter. Uh, We have not necessarily dug into all the details of the story, and I know that can frustrate people at times, but that was not the purpose of our study. I absolutely believe that the story of Exodus is a historical reality. I believe that the miracles in the Bible that are described are 100% true. Uh, I also understand that those moments illustrate redemptive themes that not only happen to that people in that place at that time, but happen to every people of God in every place at all times. Uh, As we followed the story... The last few weeks, as we've watched the children of Israel wander through the wilderness, we are reminded that there is an already not yet aspect to uh, our lives as believers. If you're a believer, there was a point in time where you already believed. There was a moment where God has already declared you as clean and saved. There has been a moment where the blood of Jesus Christ was applied to your heart and once for all you have been saved. And in that sense, the work of Christ is already complete in your life. But there's another aspect to our journey which is not yet. We're still a work in progress. We're not completely conformed to the image of Christ yet sanctification still has a work in our life and we're not yet to our final destination. Uh, That's why sometimes as Christians it can feel like life is always three steps forward, two steps back. It's where we live. And we focused on that for the last four weeks as we've looked through this personal exodus. But now I want us to cast our eyes forward to the promised land, to that to that time where the not yet is realized and we become completely uh, 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 finished in the process of our salvation. Uh, One of the things that we're going to look at today is the promised land. And when we look to the promised land, we're going to see that it represents hope. It definitely represented hope for the people of Israel over 300 times. Think about that. 300 times in four books, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 300 times the promised land or a version of it is used as a a hope that was in front of them. Uh, It was was a a hope that that encompassed a lot of things. Not only was it uh, just the, the, the promise of something 
but it was a promise of geographical hope that they were going to move from a place of slavery to a place of freedom. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the, the territory of the, of the Canaanites, Hithites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I'm taking them out of Egypt, that land of slavery, and I'm going to take them to a good land and a good place. You know, when I hear that phrase, to a land flowing with milk and honey, that's a little surprising. How many of y'all have ever been to Israel? Raise your hand. Okay, there's two or three, four. Maybe, maybe, there was about 30 in the early, I got you. There was about 30 in the early, early service, maybe about 6 to 10 in this service. I longed to go to Israel. I was called to preach when I was 16 years old, and I longed to go to Israel. But when I read that phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, I envisioned the pastures of western Kentucky. And when I got there, it was much more like the pastures of West Texas. It's a pretty barren place, really. It's not what you expect when you get there. But the geographical hope that the children of Israel had was not in the landscape. It was in the fact that they were moving from bondage into freedom. It was the fact that they were going from slave people into a people who were now going to be governed by God in their own place. The, the hope they had was more than that, though. It also was a connection with their history. For 400 years, these slaves had heard the oral tradition that had mingled its way down through the generations, that God had given land to, the, uh, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they had heard stories of this land, but none of them had seen it. And now they were getting ready to go home. Verse one of chapter 33 says, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up from here, you and your people. Uh, you're going go to go from the land of Egypt to the land that I promised, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I told them I'll give it to your offspring, and guess what you're it? There's something about connecting with home, isn't there? Have you ever gone to a friend's home place that you had never visited before? You know, you got in the car and you drove with them to a little town in somewhere Kentucky or somewhere wherever, and all of a sudden that friend comes alive and they start telling you about, hey, this is where I, I, I went to school, and this was the house I was raised in, and this was the first place that I worked, and that's the lady who gave me piano lessons when I was in fourth grade. She lived there. Have, have you, you ever been to a place like that? <laughs> I, I went to Stanford one day with Mike James, our education pastor. I know everything about Stanford now. I mean, he showed me, every, but I'm the same way. We have a connection with our, with our home. They were having a connection with the stories that they had heard. But it was more than geographical and historical. There was a hope that was communal. Their community was, was starting a new life. They were getting new laws. So they would have a new identity. They would feel a new sense of security. They saw this place as a place where they were going to be safe for generation after generation. But their hope primarily was spiritual. They believed that this was a place that they would connect with God. Exodus 6, therefore tell the Israelites, God speaking, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I'll rescue you from slavery. I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I'll, I'll take you as my people. I'll be your God, and you'll know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I'll bring you to the land that I swore to you. I am the Lord. 
later in Leviticus, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, and I did this so that I could be your God. I mean, that was his purpose, a place where they could worship him and know him and be blessed by him. I want you to understand this theme of hope is not exclusive to the people of Israel at that time. This theme of hope is given to all believers in all places at all times. Jesus taught that the hope was, was not just a place on earth, but he, uh, he promised us that we would have a place in heaven. In the New Testament, that's what's represented by the promised land. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. My heart always gravitates to these passages whenever I preach a funeral because of all the messages of Jesus, this seems to be the clearest speaking to us about our hope. And he, he says, don't let your heart be troubled when you think about death. You, you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. If it wasn't this way, I wouldn't tell you this. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that, so that where I go, you can be there. If I go, don't lose sleep. I'm going to work for you. I'm preparing a place. And the New Testament cling to this hope. The, the believers held on to this hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his mercy, he has made us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I love what the next passage says. It is a place that is an inheritance for us. It is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's reserved, kept, unfading for us and it's kept in heaven our hope and our joy of this place of heaven is for the same reasons that they had hope in the promised land just as they were in bondage this world is in bondage to sin and we live with the lasting effects of this bondage in our personal lives and in our society I don't know about you but I long for a day when it's not like it is I long for a day when it's not hate and crime and violence. I long for a day when it is not grabbing power for yourself instead of looking out for the good of others. I long for a day when it's not hurting others for self-gain. Jesus says that day is coming. It's coming for us when we arrive at God's place of hope. And it's a real place. Some people want to say that heaven's a state of mind, and that's like everywhere. Listen to a country song if you don't. I believe that. It's everywhere. Heaven's a state of mind. Jesus said heaven was a real place. You can believe that heaven is a state of mind if you so choose, but I want you to understand you're not believing the theology of the Bible, and you're not believing the theology of the Lord Jesus. Jesus taught that heaven was a real place, a place uh, not only where we will experience the, 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 the landscape with him, it is a place where we will be reconnected with our history. Just like the people of Israel were connected to the history that was passed down to them, we're going to see the saints who've gone before us. When I hear people talk about heaven, it's usually about, I'm going to go see Papa and Mama. And Papa and Mama, I hope, are there. Uh, I'm excited to meet my loved ones who've gone on before, but it's going to be more than that. 
We're going to experience missionaries who've shared the gospel and pastors who've been faithful and little ladies who have prayed so diligently for their family to be saved. We're going to meet saints of old uh, that we read about in the New Testament, and we're going to meet the saints of old that look forward to the Messiah in the Old Testament. And at that moment, we'll be reconnected, and we'll be home, and it'll be a special place. And in that place, we're going to find perfection. There's no more enemies to fight. No more oppressors to face. No more political ads. (laughs) Amen. And the community can live at peace. And best of all, we get to be with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 says, for right now we just see a reflection as in a mirror. But then we're going to see face to face. Now we see in part, but then we're going to know fully and we're going to be fully known. Right now the Bible says we see like through a dark glass dimly at best. But on that day, we will see perfectly what God has prepared for those who love him. We'll see him face to face. Now, people like to speculate what this place is like. You know, he's up there golfing in heaven at that golf course. Granny's fishing up in heaven. Or, Or my aunt's at a shopping mall up in heaven. Or... Their picture of heaven's like a coffee shop or Kroger Field or this week maybe even Neyland Stadium. But the truth is, we know very little about what heaven is like. Very little. Uh, There are some passages in Revelation that give a depiction. And I want to be very transparent with you. I don't know if it's like that or not. Most of Revelation, almost everybody believes, is symbolic. Uh, From the bowls and the trumpets and the... The, the horns on the animals, and people believe that Revelation is symbolic. So I don't know if the picture of heaven is what Revelation shares. But it says there's going to be streets of gold and jasper walls and a crystal sea. My guess is, since I can imagine a crystal, wall, a, 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 a crystal sea and a jasper wall, My guess is heaven's going to be different because the Bible says that you can't even understand with your vision what heaven's going to be like. Your mind cannot comprehend what heaven is going to be like. Even your heart doesn't quite grasp how great heaven is going to be. But in that same book where we get imagery about heaven, John says in Revelation 21, I saw this new heaven and new earth coming down. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And he goes on in this moment to describe not what the physical makeup is like, but what the atmosphere of heaven is like. He tells us that it's this place of rest. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There's no more grief, no more crying, no more pain. These things are gone. They're no longer a part of the equation. And let's, let's be honest today. This life is hard. From death to facing sin to experiencing health issues, this week I've heard from so many people who are just overwhelmed with the pain of this life. And Christianity does not exempt you from it. If you come to Christ in hopes that your earthly pain will be diminished, you're going to be sorely disappointed. As Wayne told us on Wednesday night, as we studied the book of Colossians, 
Suffering is the norm, not the exception for Christians. That's, that's what is taught. But praise the Lord, there's coming a day where it will be no more. Right now, there are so many broken things. Sin has created this circle of brokenness. We want the circle to be unbroken, but what I've found is every circle lays broken everywhere. From hardships in homes to, to marriages that are struggling, look at our, pol- our political situation, to governments around the world, to, to imprisonment, to racial tensions, to brokenness that's everywhere, in every corner of our world. And this is not the world that God intended it to be. God intends for us to live in a land of love where we treat people with respect and where we really care for others. I love what he says in verse 5. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down. Take it to the bank. Go all in on this. I'm going to make all things new. There's going to be a time of restoration. I've done a lot of weddings this year, even with COVID. I've done a lot of weddings this year. And I'll be honest, and a couple of you are getting married, so if you're watching this or you're here, every wedding but yours, okay? (laughs) Kind of joking there. Weddings are not my favorite thing to do. Because as a pastor, all you can do is get it wrong. That's all you can do is get it wrong. And at almost every wedding, somebody's not happy. You know, whether it's mother the bride, mother the groom, you know, there's almost always somebody who's just not happy. Uh, Wedding coordinator, you know, planner, groom, bride, then that's the other issues. But anyhow, almost every wedding there's that. But we do all of these preparations, and I get a perspective of weddings that almost no one else does. I love premarital counseling. That's actually fun for me. I enjoy that, getting to know people. But the wedding itself, eh, not so much. But anyhow, when we're at the wedding, there's a moment that I get to see that almost no one else gets to see. I'm standing over with the guys somewhere out of sight. And those guys are giving it to the groom. I think that's their job. I've always wondered, why do you have 10 people standing with you? It's to give more grief to the groom. But they are giving it to the groom in the back room. And they're, they're dressed in uniforms that they don't want to be in. They're rather be, I promise you I've watched more SEC football in the back hallway of a church on an iPhone than you could possibly imagine. But then the parents are seated and... Almost every wedding I've been at, all the men straighten up and act right. And they come in and they stand at attention. The bridesmaids come in. The flower girl and the ring bearer comes in. And then the music changes. And when the music changes, everybody stands up and there's the bride at the entry of the sanctuary. And everybody's looking at her, except me. I always end up looking over at that groom. Because that guy who was trying to be tough in the back, or not throw up in the back, either way, (laughs) all of a sudden, his countenance changes and he glows. Because his bride's prepared. The Bible says in Revelation 21-2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know what heaven's going to be like exactly, but it's going to feel like that moment. 
It's going to feel like that moment where, where joy sets in. There's going to be tons of rejoicing in heaven when we get there. And you know why? Verse 3. I heard this loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he'll live with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. Amen. Now, the question that always dominates our thinking when we talk about heaven is, What's it like, preacher? And my best answer is, I don't know. But I can give you a better question. Who's going to be there? I know it's good. It's like a surprise. But I don't know who gets to go. Actually, I do. But that'd be a better question for you to ask yourself today. Let's turn back to the Exodus story. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 3. If you did this during our time through the Exodus, if you picked up your Bible and you started in Exodus and you read through the book of Deuteronomy or at least through the Exodus narrative uh, in Exodus and Numbers and a little bit of Deuteronomy, what you find out is not many people get to go to the promised land. The vast majority of people are excluded. They, they get this word that they're going to be the recipients of this great land. They get this word that there's this place of great hope that they're going to get to be with God and they're going to live in joy. And yet almost every page, there are people who get left out, right? I mean, through every story I've told you, there are people who are getting left out. By the time they get to the promised land, there's only a couple of old spies and their families and almost everybody else who enters has almost no memory of Egypt. It's, it's a hard story to read. Those who grumbled were left out. Those who touched the mountain inappropriately were left out. Those who rebelled with Korah were left out. Those who worshipped idols were left out. The ten spies who gave the report that was filled with doubt were left out. Those who listened to the ten spies who gave the report filled with doubt were left out. It's a hard read. But as hard as it is to read that, you kind of get it because God had given them a standard and they were sinful and they rejected God and, and we kind of understand. But then we come to Deuteronomy chapter 3 and Moses is speaking. And he's reflecting on a moment where in anger he strikes a rock inappropriately to get water from it once again. And he disobeys God. And Moses is telling the people that at that time I begged the Lord, Lord God, you've begun to show your greatness and your strong hand to your servant. For, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can perform deeds and mighty acts like yours? And we would say, man, this is awesome. Exactly, Moses, you're right. But then Moses says, please, Lord, let me cross over. God had told him, Moses, because you've done what you've done, I can't let you in. And Moses says, please, Lord, let me cross over to the land uh, on the other side of the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. Moses tells the people, and he wouldn't listen to me. And the Lord says, that's enough. Don't speak to me about this matter again. Verse 27. He told him to go to the top of Pisgah, look to the west, the north, the south, and the east, and you're going to see with your own eyes... But you ain't going in. Joshua will take them in because I promised some people would go to the land. 
When I read that, that's heartbreaking to me. I mean, what, what a tough story. You know, I want to say, hey, God, give him a do-over. I mean, we're talking about Moses. God, how could you? He's done so much. And compared to others, he's a saint. But I want you to hear this. God never compares anyone here to others. He compares you to his holiness and his standard and his perfection. And every person who sins is excluded because of their own sinfulness. We can hear about the promised land that's prepared for his people, but if it were based on our merit and our goodness and our achievement, we would all fall short. I want to tell you, people say, I just love the Old Testament preacher, and I'm getting ready to go through three more weeks of the Old Testament, and we're going to spend about 20 in the New Testament after that. But people say, I just love when you're in the Old Testament. It's such a great book. And I want to tell you, there's not a sadder book on the planet than the Old Testament. It is a hard book. It tells you that God loves you and gives you every opportunity and the truth, and there's not a thing you can do to keep his truth and be faithful to him. It shows adultery on your part on every page. And if the Bible were to stop at Malachi, I don't know how we would move forward. But it doesn't stop with Malachi. It moves into the New Testament. But even there, the New Testament is clear that it's not just Moses and not just the spies and not just the idol makers, nor the is, just the Israelites. It is every person, male and female, young and old, religious or not, all have earned their exclusion from the kingdom. Every person. Romans 3 is clear that all have sinned and fall short of this glory of God. And the promised land, this place of hope, I promise you, is out of everyone's reach here. You cannot get there. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and that is what everyone deserves. But praise the Lord, God loved us so much that he sent his son as a gift for us. And the rest of Romans 6.23 says that this wage of sin is only dealt with when you understand the gift of God which comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sin on the cross. He didn't just die because the Romans didn't like him or the religious people had it in for him. He died because he in his, his mercy and grace was willing to take on our sin on the cross and he took on the death that we deserved so that we could have life. And he placed his righteousness inside of us when we believed. And he makes us suitable for the promised land. And only through faith in Christ can our sins be forgiven and heaven be obtained. And the Bible says, here's how you get it. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that's how you are made suitable to enter the promised land. It's not by your religious effort. It's not by your moral conduct. It's not by your altruism or your sacrificial spirit. You're only made worthy to enter the promised land by what Christ has done. You can create a fictitious theology if you want. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ said there is one way to heaven, 
and that is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says in John 14, 6. Right after he says, I'm preparing this place for you, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets there unless they come through me. That's what the Lord Jesus said. Here's what I'd like for you to do. I'm going to ask you to do something that I have never done in church before. I want everybody to get on their phone. If you could get your phone out, everybody, believer, skeptic, if you could get your phone out. You can check your clock if you want to. You can check the scores if you so choose. But I would like for everyone here who has a phone to do something today. I would like everyone here to text Porter Faith, not the quotation marks, just Porter Faith, to 94090. 94090. When you do this, and you can do it right now, that's fine. When you do this, you're going to be given the option to select one, two, or three. Don't use the hashtag or the pound sign, whatever you call that. Just put the number, one, two, or three. If you're here today and you know that you have put your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you, and that is something that happened before today, I'd love to celebrate with you for you to say, I know I've done that. Press one. We would love to hear from you. If you're here today and today you're transferring your trust from yourself to Christ, you've heard that Jesus is the way, and today you're ready to say, I want Jesus to take my life and to take me to heaven when I die, and I will follow him as Lord even now. If you're willing to do that, would you press two? Maybe you're here today and there, there are I guarantee you there are at least some people who are thinking this way, whether they will be honest about it or not, I don't know. But maybe you're here today and say, I don't know. I just don't know. But I have questions, and I'd like to talk to somebody. There's no judgment in this, but I'd love to share with you, personally, what it means to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll press three, each of those things sends you to a different prompt. I would strongly encourage, if you press two or three, that you put your name in, the, uh, in a response to us so that we can reach out to you and celebrate with you or, or, or talk to you about your questions. Maybe you didn't have a phone today and you'd like to talk to somebody. We're not going to have a time where we come forward today at invitation because we're going to move into communion. But we are going to have some people in our counseling room who would be glad to talk to you after service. Or if you don't find them, catch me as a pastor afterwards or one of our pastors would be glad to talk to you. I was out playing golf a few years ago, and I had a Catholic friend with me playing golf, and we would talk about everything, sports and faith. And one day we were talking about faith, and I was like 10 over par through two holes. And if you know golf, my hot meter was running really hot. It had been a rough day playing golf. So I'm glad we started talking about Jesus because that kept me from getting ugly. We started talking about Jesus, and, and I said, I'm glad I know that I'm saved. And he said, what do you mean you know you're saved? I said, I'm glad I know I'm going to heaven when I die. He said, what do you mean you know you're going to heaven when you die? How can a person know that? I want you to hear today, I know that I'm going to heaven when I die because I don't trust me. It's... People are really confused about Christians. They think that we believe we are better than the rest of the world. That is the absolute 
exact opposite thing of what we really believe. We believe we're the chief of sinners and that we can only go to heaven if Christ does a work in our life. But because I don't trust me and I trust Christ, I know. If it was up to me, oh my goodness, I'd live in fear every day. But it's up to Christ. And because of that, I know. I told him, I still live in worry, but I don't live in fear of missing heaven because I know Christ is faithful. I pray you have that same knowledge today. Let me give you some takeaways today. Number one, the hope of a promised land motivates me to faithfulness. God has something prepared for me, and I want to be faithful to him. Number two, the reality of our sin proves us unworthy to enter heaven. Number three, Christ died so that we could be right with God and receive eternal life. If you get that today, I've done my job. He's the only way to heaven and the only way you can know. Let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would take these words that I've shared and use them for your glory. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who's putting their faith in you for the first time, I pray, God, that you would do what only your Holy Spirit can do and give them the confidence that their salvation is secure because they trust in you. God, I'm so grateful that you love us so much that you know we can't make it on our own, and so you provide the way. You justify us in Christ. And you're completely just by him taking our sin. We love you, Lord God. Jesus, our Savior, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you have provided a way for us to spend eternity with you. Lord, I ask you to speak to us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.